Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on how to be wrong. I'm John Trapagan. Um, I'm your host for today. My uh, co-host in error, John Cag, is not feeling too well, so uh, he's not going to be joining us. Today, we are honored to welcome literary critic Maria Shuvalova to the show. Maria is a lecturer at the National University of Kiev, uh, Mohila and Mohila Academy. Uh, she's a Fulbright scholar uh, who was at the uh, Harriman Institute at Columbia, um, and, and she is the co-founder and head of a non-governmental organization um, called New Ukrainian Academic Community. And she also writes for various outlets, outlets including places like the Daily Beast. Um, I also want to emphasize that Maria is joining us from Kiev, and so we are going to learn a lot today about her experiences dealing with uh, the Russian invasion. Maria, it is wonderful to have you on How to Be Wrong. It's a pleasure to be with you today, and thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, I'm, I'm delighted. Um, so I, I want to begin, we usually start by asking our guests to talk a bit about, you know, how they came to their profession and their general background in their work. Uh, I certainly would like to know about that, but I'd also like to ask if you could describe a bit about what life was like in Kiev before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and then perhaps what it's like now and how that has affected you in terms of your profession. It's a great question. So probably I will start from the background, as it explains a lot about me and Ukraine, and then I will talk about life in Kyiv. So I was born not in Kyiv, I was born in Sarne, it's 50 kilometers to Belarus border, and this region is called Polisia, uh, because this region, it's lowlands and mixed forest. It's like a forest belt of Ukraine, very beautiful village. And uh, you probably may have heard that 25% of world reserves of high yielding black soil concentrated in Ukraine. And my ancestors were small farmers. So it sounds great to be a farmer on such fertile land, but my grandparents was born right on the middle of Holodomor. It's also known as a terror famine or great famine. It's a man-made famine in Soviet Ukraine that began in 1932 and lasted till 1933 and killed millions of Ukrainians. Like my lovely friend Daria Mattingly, she's a Ukrainian historian specializing in Holodomor, and she holds PhD from Cambridge. She wrote an article for, for a broader audience about Holodomor. So it, it, it was an article for, for CNN. So I won't talk, explain all, all about that. But she says that Ukraine was a rural country on the eve of collectivization. But the resistance uh, to the state takeover of private property was really high and higher than anyone else in the Union. So Ukrainians, as always, don't like when someone is trying to rule them. And Ukrainian peasants never supported Bolsheviki 
and they don't well were in love with collectivization policy and it provoked huge resistance so in ni- 1930s security services reported to Soviet leaders Joseph Stalin that Ukrainian peasants expelled authorities from many districts and that spelled danger for the state. So repression followed and many Ukrainian peasants were killed or sent to Siberia. And at the same time, Ukrainian intelligentsia was shaking off Russian imperial embrace in culture. So that's very turbulent time. And on the personal level, it also meant a lot for me because my grandparents uh, was born right on the middle of the famine. And my grandparents and my parents were used as a free labor. They were forced to work. They was not paid. And they even was not allowed to keep the stuff they were producing on their own garden. And like generations of my ancestor didn't have a chance to accumulate goods or capital or something like that. So my childhood was very poor. But independence dramatically changed everything. My mom has nine brothers and one sister. And one brother established business after Ukraine proclaimed independence and it went well. And all my family became employed and we stopped living on the breadline. And we became middle class. And it was when I was in the fifth grade. So then my family moved to Kyiv. And I was so envious for education. I and my sister will learn few languages. And uh, I did Fulbright in Columbia University. My sister, who is four years younger than me, was accepted to Paris Academy of Art, where she is doing monumental painting. And honestly, I picked up my career and started doing PhD only because it was completely impossible for my ancestors. And it's the first time in the history of my family we are middle class. And I and my sister became the first generation who get access to higher education. And we also were the first generation of Ukrainians that was not affected by war, famine, or, fresh, or Russian aggression. But in 2014, yeah, in 2014, everything started again. Like, uh, famine was again used as a tool to oppress and to break the resistance. Part of my family now is living under occupation when, where they cannot speak their language, their property is taken out, and um, there is tanks on tanks on the street and tracks with radio that is playing Soviet songs like Lenin is young again. So from, from such nice and bright and promising young years of my life, I go back to the life my ancestors had. So that's my background. It explains a lot about Ukrainian resistance and other things, except why, why I am still so optimistic. I don't know how to explain that. <laughs> so you're optimistic. Yeah, 
I, I can't explain why, but I'm always optimistic. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, so what is what are what are things, you know, now, what is Kiev like right now? I'll be very honest with you. Kiev is not the most convenient city to live in terms of infrastructure, air quality, or inclusion. And the city is all constantly worrying and, and struggling. But Honestly, it's the best place to be when you are young and to learn the most important things that shape you, like what civil society is, what cooperation is. And for me, Kiev was always a city of agency. All the most massive, peaceful protests were here. I missed so much classes in my middle school because I was going to Orange Revolution with my parents. I missed like so much lessons on my university because I was going to the revolution of dignity with my professors and we were passing exams, doing our seminars on the middle of the protest and on the central square of the city. Even then we were trying to combine prof- education and expression of our civic position. And when I became a lecturer myself, so the protest is important reason to miss a class for my students. They often protest against certain laws or something like that. But nevertheless, despite that there is so much discomfort in the city, the food is always gorgeous here. It's affordable. <laughs> the service, we have such a high quality of service and high standards. And digital services and digital governance work amazing. I can register my NGO via my smartphone, pay my taxes in such a user-friendly way. I can even get married via mobile application. Not get married, but establish everything. And actually, digital governance, is, was, it was very nice reform to reduce the corruption because you are not interacting with the people. There is no chance to bribe. And as all, so much services are digital, that it reduces the corruption. So I really like this digital period of our life. So Kiev, you always feel the pressure of totalitarian past here and oppression. And you always feel this vital energy of post-colonial transformation. There is comfort and rest here, and you can have a joy, but not much to stop being challenged, challenged as a citizen. So I I I just fascinated that during the worst days of the war, coffee is still brilliant and delicious here. Hmm. That's that's amazing. I um, I'm also really fascinated by the idea of of uh, digital governance. This is something I think the U.S. could learn a lot from because we're very bad at that. Um, and you know, we have all kinds of arguments going on in this country about just how to do voting uh, because people don't agree on you know how how you know, people are afraid, for example, of of setting up digital voting structures and that kind of thing. Um, but you point out, you know, that that's it takes the corruption out of it if you can take that the people out of it in a sense. So that's a very interesting observation. Um, you know, if you think about the last year or so, I mean, you know, this is a good example that there's been a need for 
a large amount of innovation and adaptation among people in Ukraine. I wonder if you could talk about um, some of the changes you've had to make in your life and and also some of the mistakes that you've made and maybe others have made in dealing with the situation that you're coping with um, and how you think those errors have influenced your life. I mean, I, it would be hard not to make mistakes in a you know, situation like this, but I, I think it's interesting to think about and learn from what that is. Yes, it's a brilliant question. I'll also highlight that Ukraine is already cooperating with Estonia and Latvia on sharing this experience of digital governments and with US as well. So we're on the process of implementing stuff like that in other countries. Um, it's very hard to explain such complex experience as full-scale invasion, because first of all, it's a huge existential crisis. It's constant physical danger, and also it's a crisis of resources and tools, and it's every, you feel that simultaneously. So it feels like you reinvent your whole life, like your body feels different. You no longer have all dreams or purposes. Professional identity is another relationship or beliefs. And it's also the biggest intellectual challenge as you, as you have to learn to do new things every day, work with difficult emotions and update your worldview. So, uh, it seems to be a very chaotic and energy-consuming process, and you are not always have a resource to reflect. I am sure that the war will be over, but even then, I keep comprehending that experience and myself and understanding what I have done. But for now, the most important thing that I learned and changed, it was during the first day of the war, I was not acting on what I was feeling, but I was always trying to build a strategy to think about my actions on what I want to achieve. It was so scary. The body was reacting in such strong way and you physically want to run but it's so it's so important during the war to control and your emotions and have emotional intelligence because if you are not able you will be killed you won't have you won't be able to build a resistance so it's the first rule rule and first adaptation, not act on what you feel, but act on what you want to achieve. Another thing is we completely rely on each other. I have never relied so much on people before in my life. Even when I was poor and we have to collaborate with a huge amount of relatives and rely on each other, it's, it's not comparable. We collaborate much, much, much more because... As a person, you might not have a solution or a resource, but your community might. And you cannot be ready for multiple things. And I promise you, the solutions that work today won't work tomorrow. So we got back to this old rule that the, communi that the community that stick together will still survive. And people are most important. And... It's a key, and uh, it's very important that your the more the more self-reflecting your community is, 
and the more ecological communication is, the more chances to survive you have. So people and the quality of communication, like it's everything. It's it's very surprising how in a huge city, a very individualistic period of our time, we can such rely on each other. So it's a general rule, but also we had tools. When we had an issue, for an each issue, we started building completely decentralized not hierarchical, flexible, and not registered networks. So we have a request. My friend is on the front line, on the harshest place of the front line, and they need a drone. And my friend in Norway, she has a drone. There is no logistic at all. You, there is huge queues on the borders. But because you have friends in different European countries, you can easily build a network, like in five hours, you build a network of people who will bring this drone to you and other people who will bring that directly on the front line. And once you use this network, you're never getting back to that because there is next task, like buy bulletproof vest in China and pay in that in cryptocurrency. I had never experienced working with a cryptocurrency, but my husband knew how to do that. And we built another network and so on and so on and so on. And it's um, building these networks. It's the thing we advanced during the war. I highly recommend all works of Katarina Zarembo, Oksana Hus, and Alexandra Kyodel. They are Ukrainian researchers who are providing their research in different world universities, and they write everything in English because they clearly stated uh, unique features of Ukrainian civil society. It's decentralized, not hierarchical, flexible, and consists of not registered professional artistic networks. So for multiple researchers, it's so hard to research Ukrainian civic society because they do not know the language and they do not have do not have an access to not registered communities and they are doing all this work so it's very fascinating but it's pretty logical because often we as a nation didn't didn't have a state or the rule, ruler of the state was set by another country like in soviet ukraine so people people had to be very self-organized and do huge amount of work instead of state. It's a state didn't represent them. So, so it's very challenging position for an individualist. I have to work, earn money, do work instead of state, care about many things that are not important for a state, resist to multiple imperialistic policies. So it's so much fun. You're you're constantly feeling exhausted but alive here. But the, but probably that's why the coffee is gorgeous. There is always compensation for something like that. Yeah. I, I'm curious. It, it sounds like what, what you're saying in a sense is that um, the experience under Soviet rule in a way almost prepared you for the invasion because you had to have these informal networks in order to deal with Soviet rule. That is rather ironic, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. I, I never would have thought yeah, of that. Yeah, Ukraine um, had very long history of civic engagement and also very long history of uh, anti-imperialism because uh, Hungary had imperial ambitions on Ukraine and the them were resisted. 
Austria had imperial ambitions on Ukraine. We resisted. Germany had imperial ambitions. We resisted. During First World War, there were nine armies. They were fighting in Ukraine. Second World War, we get rid of. So uh, I clearly remembered how our narrative is changed about a great terror or holodomor, uh, because often failures of Ukrainian state was explained that during the uh, terror famine, uh, peasants were killed and intelligentsia was killed. So there was no one to keep doing the work actively. But uh, during this full-scale invasion, the narrative changed. Like we started recognizing ourselves as a nation that was not breaked down by the famine. So it's obvious that we won't be broken, but by this full-scale invasion as well. So it's multi-central, and it's not about Russian imperialism, but also other kinds of imperialism as well. So for our culture, literature, music, paintings, uh, we just feel so sensitive toward imperialism because because we had it so much and we are not struggling for democracy as just very specific kind of political regime we're just struggling for uh, freedom as exist as an existential category it's so important for us because we're just always dealing with bad guys yeah, that's actually something also I think uh, Americans don't understand very well. It's different to sort of talk about freedom as a sort of an abstraction um, and and a, and a way of life. It's different to talk about your 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 existential reality and you know just the freedom to exist is a is a very different kind of freedom that you're talking exactly. about. Exactly, I'm so shocked to experience that I am targeted that someone believe I'm fake, my state is fake, my language doesn't exist, that I have never had, uh, like, like my parents did not speak Ukrainian or their grandparents. It's so awkward. It, it's so awkward just not to be safe, to be yourself. And even if I'm, when I was going to Canada for a conference, I was stalked by a Russian guy for in the airport who saw my Ukrainian passport. It's bizarre. Wow. He followed you around? Yeah. <laughs> he was threatening me. And it's so bizarre because for me, as a young person that was born in independent states, this idea is too crazy to be real that someone want to target you because you're Ukrainian. Oh my gosh, like, what's wrong? Yeah. Why should it matter to him that you're Ukrainian or, or anything else? Yeah. 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 That's, that's amazing. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about your work. Um, you've been, um, involved in efforts to kind of keep the academic world going, you know, in the middle of, of, you know, the, the situation, um, which I think is, you know, one of the things that people often don't think about is all the things that collapse when a country is invaded. And of course, the academic world collapses. It's hard to keep it operating. How do you keep the universities going? And so I was wondering if you could talk about the types of things that you've been doing, like like this uh, translation series that we're both involved with it at Academic Studies Press or, or really anything else. You know, 
uh, why did you decide to develop these projects in the middle of the war and what kinds of things have you been doing? Yeah, that's a very good question. During the first day of the war, I just completely lost my professional identity and I thought I would never work as a scholar. And also I felt that it's so pointless. What's, wh- how can you analyze literary texts when you are attacked by missiles and how it will protect you, change this world? So it's huge existent crisis of the purpose. But then my colleagues who were in a safer position abroad, they just pushed me to write something, to take part in the conference. And then we get back to teaching on the second months of the war and I had no idea how to do that like part of my students are under occupation or something like that some of them lost homes their parents it's bizarre but but in a few months I adapted and right now I realize that despite the full-scale invasion all democratic institutions are functioning in Ukraine in a different way, but but it's very surprising. It's also the thing not all people understand that all administrations are working schools, kindergartens, universities, but but definitely everything changed. So we're we're brainstorming, developing different strategies, and also uh, pay a lot of attention to mental health, and we are caring of our students because. It's also our responsibility of teachers to make sure they eat, they have a place to stay, their family have money. So we're checking this as well. And if someone of our students needs something, we just fundraise and deliver and sticking together. And I find myself in a very unusual position as a scholar because the circumstances allow me only to document uh research a bit uh, but also uh experience war and i feel that i'm research object and a subject of my research and it's a bit challenging but also uh very stimulating intellectually and uh, of course it's uh features of this war are also highly game-changing Of course, it's not the first war in the history of Europe. Nevertheless, it's first war in Europe in the global and digital era. And that impact literature and literary criticism. And I am first who can reflect on that. Like Ukrainian writers do not have physical distance from the war. uh, And we also do not have time distance. We document, research, make and share literary works about ongoing events almost in real time. And it's also changed means and roles of literature. We see, the, we perceive the literature as a document and literature as a communication and a coping strategy. Also, we observe the highest rate of mixing different genres and applying various different digital tools for narrations and storytelling. And as a scholar, I experience the lack of theories and approaches, which I need now. And 
the time when you cannot relate on libraries and cannot access academic infrastructure, the importance of critical thinking, work ethic, and ability to think and work independently as high as never. And it's just changed the whole nature of academic work you are doing. And also what I noticed that the category of readers dramatically changed. Readers, uh, they consume fiction and they, they know that, for example, readers that consume fiction or fiction about current war in Ukraine, they completely understand that these fictional characters and events are real and that research objects that I, they are real and all objects of my research are alive. Some of them just have lost their family members or they are at risk of being killed. And it's it's completely changed the category of reader in the history of literature. And readers are so involved, they have never been so involved. And they also might share the trauma we are we are talking and discussing. And if if and a lot of readers they are joining the resistance. And it's very huge responsibility of readers and consumers, the content about Ukraine. How should they react? How they should comprehend fiction about real crime that are happening right now? And that's challenge. All the stuff we talk and describe, it's also challenging understanding of other people of security and humanity. And many readers became or scholars, they became advocates, volunteers. So can we talk about agency of readers or agency of scholars? Because we often talk about agency of civil society members. It's new categories in literary studies. And we definitely have to recalibrate the category of objectivity and subjectivity. We all, while we are doing with the research, we all experience emotions. We all consume a dif- different violent content, graphic content. We're all engaged and we all have to develop our coping strategy. Uh, and it's just fascinating how everything changed, how perception of literature changed during the war. So when I describe new purposes of literature and um, when I also understood that it's communication, because not all people knew who we are. Like the first day of the war, I my district is bombarded and I'm talking with a journalist and he is struggling with understanding what what is different is between Russians and Ukrainians and why even they attacked us. And this person didn't know about the war in 2014. And the literature and research is also communications. And to, so everything was changed. And I am lucky to have this privilege to have education, to comprehend, reflect, and it also helps me to build more effective coping strategy for me as an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that you, you know is very important about this is, is how 
despite our world of being so interconnected, how little we often know of other places, you know, that you said this guy didn't know anything about, you know, the war for you has actually been much longer than just a year because this really did start in 2014. Um, and yet people in other places are pretty unaware of that. It, it reminded me of something you, a while back, you, you posted something about um, the literature in Russia and the way that it represents like the United States and other places. And I, I was not knowing anything about this because I don't read Russian and, you know, I wouldn't see it in translation. I was really sort of shocked. Could you talk a little bit about some of that literature? Yeah, I, I did a research back in 2019 uh, about Russian fiction and how contemporary Russian fiction represent current war. And the main feature was that in Russian, in Russia, in Russian language, the fiction about contemporary Russian-Ukrainian war appeared earlier than war. In 2009, 2010, 2011, appeared huge amount of novels about nearest future when Russia invaded Crimea and also in uh, occupying Donetsk and Luhansk district. And the motivation was the following. NATO and United States are provoking the Third World War and doing that on the territory of Ukraine and Russia as a great power trying to rescue Russian-speaking population and restore peace and nice prosperous life. And that's why they are attacking Ukraine and annexing Crimea. And if we compare with that with political statements, yeah, this political statements was proclaimed in 2006 and something like that. And also, if there is a lot of scholars who are working in prominent universities who are also trying to convince that there is civil war in Ukraine and that's a NATO or United States fall, that the war started. So what this war warned me that literature is not just a literature. Literature can be art, can be communication strategy, coping strategy, and propaganda as well. So they need to think critically higher than never. And it's our work as a scholars, not only to do our analysis, but also communicate with a broader audience to give them a tool so they will be able to distinguish certain things and that will, will in, in, enlarge our chances for peace and security because it's a digital age. And to occupy a country, you sometimes do not need a border, you can occupy the mind, said the idea. And that's the reason why not, there was no reactions in 2014, because Russian voice was so prominent and so strong that it was, and the so much versions why the thing happened, that it was too challenging. And also there is a crisis of expertise. I was so shocked that Sometimes people saying they are experts when they are not knowing the language and can't can't work with primary sources. I thought that cannot happen in United States or in Europe. Like no, that can happen. So oh, <laughs> it's it's all all you have to do is go look at Twitter, and you will see thousands of people who are experts on everything, 
most of whom know nothing about anything they're experts on. You know, it's it's astonishing. Um, there, this is actually a problem in the U.S. There has been in the last few decades, and it kind of runs through American history, but there's been a really overt uh, attack on the idea of expertise, that there are people who actually have knowledge that you can't get from just Googling it. And, you know, you hear people all the time, you know, here saying, oh, I'm going to research this on the internet. You're not doing research. You're looking shit up on the internet. That's what you're doing. And But the mindset, they believe that because they can Google something, they can somehow deeply understand things. And, and I think this is where, you know, in, like in the situation in Ukraine, I think the role of academics is so important because a surface level understanding of what's happening there is not what we need. We need a deep expert understanding, and that involves experience, but also, you know, working through the literature, working through the different ways that propaganda gets used, and which I think is it's really important. Your role, people like what you're doing, is very important in what's happening there, uh, particularly when you look at like the U.S., where a lot of people, you know, we've got people in the U.S. are saying, oh, it's ridiculous. We shouldn't be supporting Ukraine. And it's like, well, you don't understand what's happening there. You know, <laughs> um, it just it astonishes me. I get a bit irritated about it, but um, but I think you know this is why one of the reasons why the, keeping the academic world going is it matters even in the middle of the yeah. a war. Yeah, it's it's painful, but we always face here uh, multiple challenges first, right? Like Russian disinformation, this sophisticated Russian disinformation, this sophisticated hybrid wars. And now we push the world to change the legislation, laws, and to find other solutions in order to establish another better global peace and security model. And like, we would love to share this experience because here we have so much coping strategies and strategies of resilience. And the world will keep being a tough place. So it will be nice to incorporate the best stuff we have here to make our world like safer. And um, just very important to exchange the experience. And also with uh, our iconic poet, Taras Shevchenko, learned us learn what others are doing and share your, exp- share your experience. That is the way to success. And it's very old canonical Ukrainian uh, mantra. So indeed, we also, as a scholars, will do better job if we also communicate in an ecological way and cooperate in a non-hierarchical and practical way. Yeah, I think, you know, the... <laughs> The world needs to learn from what's happening in Ukraine right now, and and the voices of people there need to come out so people can learn from this. So, you know, I I sort of chuckled as I was saying that because you know in the back of my mind it arose. Well, you would have think thought we would have learned this by now, um, having gone through two world wars and all the other wars that we've gone through, but we don't seem to have learned. And so, you know, I think it's really important for these voices to come out and and hopefully get people to realize what's actually happening. Um, yeah, and I also really but, like that the, the podcast is called How to Be Wrong. 
another thing we i'm also very ready to be open when i am wrong and to recognize all mistakes we did we keep doing because only being very open on what you just have done wrong you can move forward ukraine is not a perfect country and we're not always dealing with everything in a nice and productive way we have a huge amount of problems as well. So I just don't want people percept us like perfect and very nice people. Like we're just people like everyone else. But but indeed, very bad situation motivate you to be a better version of yourself and be open on your mistakes will make your chances to survive higher and higher. So that's very practical motivation to admit. I think that, that, and that brings me to the next question I wanted to explore a bit is, you know, when you think we've talked a bit about emotion and obviously anger has to have been, been a major and it's still got to be a constant emotion that you're, you know, dealing with. Um, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about anger, but also the idea of humility in the face of the invasion. Um, and as a scholar, uh, maybe a bit about intellectual or epistemological humility, in relation to the experience of war, I'm, I'm wondering, as a scholar, you know, how do you think the the war has changed your thinking about the work and the role of academics? We've touched on that a little bit. I wonder if you go in a little bit more depth on that. Yeah, anger is a very common emotion. I admit that, and also I think it's legit, and we have a right to be angry, and this emotion has its functions. Anger. As in any strong emotions help us to remember certain things and prevent them from happening. Also, that I believe that's true that the anger of Ukrainian society may increase if international community won't sincerely collaborate on establishing new global security format, new laws to punish all these war criminals and really change something. And I think it's also normal and it's also legit because uh, uh, people are angry when there is a huge amount of injustice. And yeah, to make our world more prosperous and to have well-being, we have to build as as fair and as justice model as we can. So it's also legit. I really like the book, The Geopolitics of Emotions, how cultures of fear, humiliation, and hope are reshaping the world. The author is Dominique Moisi. He's... He's Italian scholar, so I might mispronounce his name. <laughs> yeah, but I but I'm accurate with the title of the book. I have Ukrainian translation here, and personally, I love emotion of anger because it feels much better than grief, despair, and fear. And anger helped me to work longer hours. And uh, I will repeat myself. If you cannot rule your emotions, it's stupid to ignore or to uh, or to pretend you don't have them. If you can rule your emotions on the war, you are dead and you won't build a resistance strategy. So I experience more emotions because of the war. I work more with them and I am very open about their role, but I do not act upon them. I act upon things I dream to have. And it's our coping strategy because each time we are we are figuring out about new Russian crimes, 
we establish more fundraisers to help families or to change and we we direct our anger to actions that are constructive we won't avoid emotions but we can we can transfer them in more constructive way each time we are, we were experiencing massive bombardments of Kyiv we were donating all money we were having for drones and other weapons that can protect us and it was each time and or each time we're experiencing new crisis, that means you have to find one more freelance job, get your payment and spend it and donate it to the initiative you trust. And and that felt good, that help you to deal with these emotions. I, I believe it's so important for adult people and adult societies acknowledge uh, and, uh, and rule your emotions and to be very constructive with them. And also it's so important to be to build right memory politics because if we won't do that, we will have so much problems. Like I was very fascinated by the thing that my great-grandparent, great-grandpa, his grave is in Berlin suburbs because he was he was liberating Europe from a Nazi regime. And when I started doing my history courses in university, I explored that the amount of Ukrainians in Soviet army was huge. Almost each third or first general was Ukrainian origin and the amount of Ukrainian soldiers was huge. But in 10 years, Knowing that, not having a grave of my great-grandfather in Berlin, uh, in the 10 years, my classmate and close friend, Maria Kovalchuk, she also started doing PhD in Munich University, and she did a, a research about German memory politics. So she uh, read all school books uh, that was written in German language, to see how Ukrainians are represented in the Second World War. And there, is, there were zero mentions about Ukraine. So imagine how kids and young generation, they will grow up and they will grow up with the thought that Russia liberated the whole world from Nazi regime and that they own them. And Russia also paid reparation, or Germany paid reparation only to Russia, not to other countries. And that's not a right memory politics. And on this myth that Russia is a great power that, that liberated the world from the Nazi, which is not uh, such a true because other countries were involved, Belarusian troops, Belarusian people, the help of United States, Europe, and so on. It was very important. So it's just a myth. But when a myth became a political tool and memory politic is so dangerous and it's so hard to reshape it, and that's where the scholars have to work harder and harder. And we have to understand how our scholarly work affects different areas and be very responsible on narratives, on our quality of our research, and to be very honest about our positionality and standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was you know, struck about 
uh, as you're talking about how Ukrainians responded. And, you know, with the theme of this podcast, how to be wrong, it, it just struck me how utterly wrong Putin got things. He didn't understand Ukrainian culture at all. And that's a huge mistake, um, you know, aside from the invasion, just being a mistake. But but the the arrogance and the unwillingness to understand another place led him down a path that basically is bound to fail and doesn't make any sense. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really striking. It's, it's kind of the, the, you know, we've seen this over and over with, you know, various societies in, in the world that, that attack another society. And often one of their big mistakes is the failure to understand the culture of the society they're attacking. I mean, this happened when, when Japan attacked the United States in 1941, there had been a, you know, significant pacifist movement in the United States and the Japanese thought that the U.S. would just basically say, oh, okay, we'll leave you alone. But they didn't really understand that attacking American soil would completely change the way people looked at things because they didn't understand the culture. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You just, Putin doesn't, I'm sure he didn't care either, but, um, but, you know, it has, he has made an enormous mistake. It's striking to look at basically everything he's tried to do has backfired. You know, the, the, the goal of trying to split up NATO, well, it's stronger than ever. Um, you know, it's just one thing after another when you look at it. Um, and it's basically a product of arrogance um, that, that led to that. Um, yeah, you probably know this, socio- this law from the sociology that the most loud voice, it's not the most representative voice. But these colonial politics are very effective and probably not. We, we, you, people also have to understand that we are dealing with internal decolonization and deimperialization as well. And I'm dealing with that personally. When I was a kid, I came to Kyiv uh, in my fifth grade, and I was speaking Ukrainian because I was born in Ukraine. I never heard Russian before because I don't have, I have never had a TV in my childhood because we were a poor family. Uh, so we came to Kyiv, and I went to school, and then I get back home and ask my mom, like, Mom, why kids are speaking such a strange Ukrainian? And my mom told me, that's Russian. Like, what is that? I was so shocked that people are, kids are speaking in a school in Russian. And as they were making love for me because I was speaking Ukrainian, they immediately perceived me as completely not cool person, peasant, stupid, not cool. And I believe that it's true. When I was a kid, I thought I'm not cool. Cool. And then I started talking Russian and I was so ashamed. Like I felt I betrayed myself because I just gave up something authentic in order to be cool. And I was so ashamed of my parents, of my culture. And when I were getting back home and I was talking by phone with my classmates, I was Again, it's shame that I'm speaking Russian because my parents saw that I betrayed something authentic. And uh, then I became popular. I got a lot of friends because I was not having friends for a few years in school because of my native language. And then I got back to, I entered university 
and it was Kyiv Mohyl University, which like was very Ukrainian. People were speaking Ukrainian there, and they were uh, very nice in teaching Ukrainian literature, history, and so on. And then I was like seventeen or eighteen when I started studying history, and I realized that for the last three hundred years, Ukrainian language was constantly forbidden that people were killed by because of speaking Ukrainian and the only way to use Ukrainian was to sing silly songs about the village and that said no children books no science in Ukrainian and it was uh, entertainment industry was working to picture Ukrainians as simple stupid villagers that always fighting with each other and they're just they are poor because they are stupid and they are stupid because they are poor and nothing can be done and only then I realized that it's not me who is not cool it's just imperial policies and the result of imperial policies for being like ashamed of who you are as it's the case is not me, it's just imperialism. And it was a huge realization for me. And only when the war started in 2014, I realized that we are not stupid, uh, but intelligentsia was killed. The brain of the nations were killed. That's why there is a lack of smart people here. And we are not poor because we are stupid. That for centuries, empire was taking our land, material goods, non-material goods, intellectual property. Like They were pretending that Degas was painting Russian dancers while it was Ukrainian dancers. And it was a huge scandal with museums who were not willing to to change the title and something like that. So we as a society also dealing with internal colonization and rethinking ourselves. And if when I was a kid, it was very shameful to speak Ukrainian. After 24, after Orange Revolution, it wasn't like that. And after the revolution of dignity, speaking Ukrainian meant that you're intelligentsia, that you're smart, that you're critical. So... So, like, with all this experience, you you're you're completely understanding how how everything is unsaid, and we're we as a human are always searching for a best coping strategies and strategies to survive, and that's it. Yeah, the that the discussion of language in particular reminds me a great deal of what Native Americans have faced, where the U.S. government, you know, in schools and things, prohibited Native Americans from speaking their own language. It's it's a, a form of dominance that, you know, a kind of imperialism that basically rips people of their own culture, and uh, you know, and that's of course exactly what Russia is trying to do yet again. Um, so. So this is this has been a really uh, powerful conversation. I, I I wonder if there's anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't covered uh, about your situation or about the topic of how to be wrong. Um, I, I think our listeners are going to learn a great deal from this discussion. Mm-hmm. Probably, I would like just to highlight that uh, uh, that 
Ukraine might look very inspirational, but we do not have to romanticize or to idealize things because like being a kid of famine survivors who build successful business, it on the same time, it means having great example of strengths, but also inter intergenerational trauma pluses and minuses at the same time. And being Ukrainian also means being ashamed of who you are, oppressed, overlooked. But also it means positive things like being anti-imperial, sensitive to injustice, have this post-colonial transformative power. And also our success in resistance means a lot of killed Ukrainians who were brilliant, who were young, who were talented. And we're missing that so much. I just physically can feel how many war- work I have, more and more work per one person. And it's devastating to miss all those people. And I feel like I am between the hell and civilized world and both of these realities are real and they are legit for me and uh, that's probably shape a lot of things and i would also like to remind that we can't ignore that the world is very bad place but uh, it's also true that there is good things and it's always be like that it might sound frightening, but the good thing is that we can contribute to making certain tendencies stronger. So. Well, Maria, I, I find your, your optimism to be just uh, uh, both inspirational and, and astonishing. Um, and, and I have really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I think as I said, I think our listeners are going to learn a lot and not just about the um, situation in Ukraine, but just about life, which, you know, that's ultimately what all of this is about. So I would thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to mention that your work embracing uncertainty is also became our mantra because all that we do, we embrace uncertainty and we're looking so much the Ukrainian translation of your work. And I'm also really grateful for this time and this invitation because it's just an opportunity for me to make a pause and to reflect a bit and I'm sure that I was wrong somewhere and (laughs) it's completely okay yes it is okay to be wrong that is I think an important thing well I don't think it's okay to be wrong in the way that Putin is wrong but (laughs) in our daily lives I think it is okay and I think you know we we need to learn from those things and and so Um, Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me as well.